Since 1968, Locust Magazine has been providing science fiction and fantasy fans with the most comprehensive industry coverage around. Every month, you'll find news covering publishers, conferences, and awards from around the globe, reviews for books and short stories from notable critics, insightful interviews with top authors, as well as up-and-coming talent, extensive listings of books and magazines published in the U.S. and the U.K., bestseller lists, promotions, commentary, color photos, and more. And now Locust can be delivered to your inbox every month. Just log on to locustmag.com today to begin your 6, 12, or 24-month subscription, available as digital download, print, or both. If you love speculative fiction, be it fantasy, science fiction, or horror, Locust Magazine is the publication to keep you up to speed on the latest industry news each and every month. Hugo award-winning coverage, unlike any other magazine around. So what are you waiting for? Visit locustmag.com. That's locustmag.com. And subscribe today. Hi, this is Jeff Salyards, the author of the Bloodsounders Arc Trilogy, and you are listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Matheny. I'm Philip Overby. And we've got a brand new episode here, Philip. We're speaking with Jeff Salyards, author of the Bloodsounders Arc Trilogy. Awesome interview. It's really long. It's like an hour-long interview. We, we covered a bunch of stuff, grimdark, uh, publishing, um, all sorts of cool stuff. Very cool for uh, Jeff to come on the show. So stick around. We're going to be talking to him in just a moment. But, Phil, I'm feeling generous today. We do have a new partnership with Locust Magazine. They've uh, ponied up some subscriptions to the magazine, and we're actually going to give away one digital subscription to Locust Magazine today. We got a giveaway, so it's very easy to enter. Just email us. It's grimdarkfiction at gmail.com. That's grimdarkfiction at gmail.com. In the subject line, write Locust Mag Swag. How do you like that for a tagline? Yeah, I came up with that. It's pretty great. Brilliant. It's pretty great, huh? It's great stuff. It's good. But yeah, just email us. This is open up worldwide, uh, first person through the gate. So it, it pays to subscribe to our podcast. I hope people are finding out that if you subscribe to the show and you find out that it's released and you hear the new episode once it comes out, yeah, odds are you might win something. So keep an ear out. We're going to have more magazine subscriptions to give away. But today we will be giving away one six-month subscription to Locust Magazine, which is an awesome sauce magazine, jam-packed full of sci-fi, fantasy, horror coverage in the industry, authors, bestseller lists, color photos, extensive listings, awards, everything you want to know about uh, science fiction and fantasy and more is available in the fine pages of Locust Magazine. And thanks again to Locust for partnering up with us. And you can always head over to locustmag.com today if you would like to begin your own subscription, either digital or print. So pretty cool stuff, right, Phil? Yeah, definitely go over and check it out at locustmag.com. And we have a fan of the week. It's been a while, Phil, since we've, we've done the fan of the week. It should be like the fan of the month or maybe the fan of the season at this point. But we just call it the fan of the week. And that's just a way to show appreciation to the awesome people out there who uh, help support the show, who share it with folks. And I'll tell you what, the fan of the week I'm, I'm excited to announce this week is Larry Haydorn, 
who basically shares every single episode that we do on a religious basis. His loyalty is noted, and he is this week's fan of the week. So thank you, Larry, for kicking ass and supporting the show. You've been there for a long time, and you are awesome. And we ha- happily declare you fan of the week this week. And you can also check out Larry and his friends playing different role-playing games on their YouTube channel, The Scribbler's Rest. So if you're into tabletop games, you can watch them play Shadowrun or Pathfinder and many other kinds of games, Dungeons & Dragons as well. So go on and give that a look-see and give Larry your support. Yes, thank you, Larry, for being awesome and for sharing the show. And thanks to all of our fans who uh, like our Facebook page, who follow us on Twitter at Grimdark Fiction and retweet us and stuff like that. It's very much appreciated. And it's just a way to show your love for us and our love for you. And uh, fan of the week, Larry, thanks for being awesome and for all the support. Also, October is coming up all horror podcasts all month long during the month of October. Guests include Ellen Datlow, Paul Tremblay, Armand, Rosamelia, Jeff O'Brien, and many more. So plenty of cool folks coming up for the month of October. Um, it's going to be really cool, Philip. Uh, are you excited for Halloween? Yeah, Halloween's a big uh, thing to do here in Japan. Uh, in Shibuya, it's pretty crazy. And I think I may venture out of my loner bubble, so to speak. <laughs> And maybe give it a shot this year. I don't know. I think my band's playing a show around that time also. So we're doing a Halloween festival kind of thing. So I'm in the Halloween spirit already, even though it's late September right now. (laughs) Get started. Do you know what you're going to be for Halloween? Uh, I'm probably going to be Happy Phil for Halloween. (laughs) It's a character. AKA Drunk Phil. It's a character I don't bring out very much. (laughs) I can attest to that. That's true. Yes. Awesome. Well, happy Halloween and folks, please uh, join us for the October celebration that we have coming up the month of October. And we do have the dot com forthcoming. The Grim Tidings podcast dot com is under construction forthcoming featuring guest blog posts, all sorts of cool shit coming up. So 2017 is going to rock. Yeah, 2017 is the year of Grim. It's coming. Hopefully in a good way and not a bad way. Yeah, because 2016 has been pretty, pretty Grim. Pretty Grim. (laughs) Grim AF. Grim AF. <laughs> For 2016. If we have a band that needs to be called Grim AF. <laughs> and now our interview with Jeff Salyards, author of The Blood Sounders Arc. Enjoy. Our guest today was born and raised in northern Illinois. From a young age, he was into the fantastical worlds that would spawn even more worlds from his imagination. By day, he's a book editor for the American Bar Association. By night, he works as an author of fantasy fiction, most notably for his first trilogy, The Blood Sounders Ark. Book 1, Scourge of the Betrayer, Book 2, Veil of the Deserters, and Book 3, Chains of the Heretic have quickly become new favorites in the grim dark subgenre. A series in which past guest David Anthony Durham says is just as harsh and profane as anything Richard K. Morgan or Joe Abercrombie serves up. Currently residing near Chicago with his wife and three daughters, one of the most requested authors to join us on the show, the Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Mr. Jeff Salyards to the show. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that introduction. That was uh, warm and welcoming. Awesome. Yeah, great to have you, man. Uh, like I said, you are a highly requested author on the program. I've had multiple people say, when are you getting that Salyards guy on? He looks fantastic and his books are also fantastic and you should really get him on. So it's a privilege to finally lasso you in, sir. You're very busy working for the uh, American Bar Association. You have three children, which is madness. <laughs> um, I, I have 
four children. So as we were talking about before the show started that, you know, life gets busy. But I wanted to bring you on today and and let's first and foremost, let's talk about the Blood Sounders arc trilogy. The trilogy is complete. You finished out with Change the Heretic just a couple months ago. Yep. But if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about the series for listeners who haven't read it yet and tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Thanks again for inviting me and uh, thank you for asking me about the books. That's terrific. The series event originally was kind of conceived in my head about 14 years ago. And being a uh, preeminent procrastinator, who's uh, at that point I had no kids, mine are nine, seven, and five, so this was pre-children. Um, you know, I putzed around and, and didn't really work on it. I took notes here, did some world building there, wrote a scene here. So years uh, rolled on without me really making any progress on it. And the idea that that sort of uh, kickstarted it was I I was reading uh, Frossart's Chronicles, which is um, nonfiction. It's about the Middle Ages, 14th century, and it's about this this dude who just uh, companies military companies during the Hundred Years' War. And uh, so he's sort of like a you know a pre version of an, a, an embedded journalist. And so he just gives his take on the entire the war, uh, the parties involved, uh, the politics, all the rest of it. And he's very much embedded in terms of it was that was part of his class. He belonged to it. And so he was an insider and gave an insider's perspective on the whole thing. But I thought it would be really kind of cool if the if I did a fantasy version of that, but instead of the chronicler or the journalist being really uh, a part of the company and really embedded, truly embedded, I thought it'd be more interesting or at least uh, a different a different spin on it if he was uh, definitely an outsider and had no idea what he was getting into uh, as he joined this this military company, which is sort of like a, a Sildoon uh, run by Captain Kilcoin. It's sort of like a black ops uh, company, small company. And so he has no clue what he's getting into. He's way out of his, his depth. Uh, has no no sense of what he's he's really. Tr- I mean, he understands what the Sildoon are. Everybody does. They're sort of infamous, but just in terms of what their agenda is, uh, what the kind of the scope and the stakes are involved in the story, he has no clue. So from the very beginning of the story. It, it, the reader gets to learn about what's happening as he does because he's constantly, as a good journalist does, asking tons of questions and trying to piece it out, parse out what, what's happening and, and what's involved and what, what really what's the story. And so um, that, was, that was the idea. And as I said, I, I putzed around with it for years. And it was actually when I had my first daughter, uh, we were living, my wife and I were living over in England at the time. And um, she, we, she was born there in England, my daughter. And that's sort of when I realized... I, I either needed to kind of shit or get off the pot. I needed to really write this thing, and even and and because now suddenly I had no free time. I had all the free time in the world before that and didn't use it. And as you know, <laughs> once you have kids, yeah. <laughs> it goes out the window in a heartbeat. So it sort of hit me that I, I've really got to do this if I'm going to do it, and and quit calling myself a writer unless I'm actually sitting down and writing. And so that really pushed it forward. Uh, kind of uh, gave me some more incentive and momentum to really write this thing. And uh, so that's that's kind of the origins of it. That's where it took off. And um, then, you know, got the deal with Nightshade Books and the, that went from there. And fans have really been enjoying the book with the uh, second book, uh, Veil the Deserters. You know, people often say, you know, some, sometimes there's that sophomore slump that definitely was not an issue with Veil the Deserters. You just kind of capitalized on the first book and made it even better. And then Chains of the Heretic, people are just resoundingly saying what an amazing conclusion to the trilogy with that title. So people are just loving this. Would you kind of classify this as sword and sorcery or grimdark or where, what sort of uh, classification would you put this trilogy? Well, it it is. I, I'm sure it does fall kind of in the grim dark, um, you know, type. And we're talking typography. It probably does fall there in terms of uh, you know just the landscape and, and where what kind of subgenre it is. It's more that I think. It's got some sword and sorcery elements to it as well. But 
Um, yeah, it definitely belongs, I think, on, under that umbrella. When I pitched the, the book to the agents, I, I hadn't heard of the term grimdark before, not in terms of you know Warhammer and certainly not in terms of fantasy. And maybe that's just me being dense and it was already out there and I wasn't aware of it, but I didn't, I had never heard of it. And so when I described it to agents, when I was trying to get them on the, you know, on the hook, um, in my query letters, I pitched it as, as fantasy film noir. And mm. what, what I sort of meant by that was, I don't know if you're familiar with that as a, as a film, you know, subgenre, um, you know, but that was Orson Welles and Fritz Lang and, and a bunch of them in the forties and fifties. It's that really dark, gritty, uh, moody, atmospheric, uh, usually crime dramas, uh, the Coen brothers, uh, recently have done several that I think would fall under that sort of, uh, that thing where it's, you know, blood simple, um, no country for old men, uh, Miller's crossing. So, you know, that sort of just, it's all about character. It's all about morally compromised characters in this really moody sort of pessimistic world. Um, and, and I wanted to, that was sort of the idea that I had in my head when, when I wrote it and pitched it was, it was going to be a really, especially in the first book, a really intimate, small group. And it was all about, uh, atmosphere and mood. And so you don't, you don't really learn, as I said, what, along with Arky, the, the chronicler, you don't learn what the real story is till pretty far along in the first book. And then it opens up more in the second and third book. So I was really hoping that kind of the mood and atmosphere and the characters would carry the day, but that was definitely, uh, how I pitched it. And, and had I heard the term grimdark, I probably would have used that instead. Uh, it, probably more easily accessible, I guess, but, um, more people are maybe familiar with that now than, than film noir, but that was kind of the, the pitch. So do you feel that the film noir vibe to it gives it a different vibe than, than what a regular quote unquote epic fantasy or sword and sorcery fantasy would have? Uh, do you feel like that adds a different layer to it? How the mystery kind of unravels about the Sildun as you're going through the story and you don't, you're not doing info dumping a lot like, uh, some, uh, fantasy authors have the tendency to do. Yeah. I mean, I do think it, it definitely gives it a different twist for that reason, for good or ill, you know, some readers, especially the first book, I think were sort of frustrated with the pace because they wanted to find out what the plot was. They wanted to find out what the story underpinning everything was. They wanted to find out what all the relationships meant. And I, I was really, it was sort of a slow burn and that was intentional. Uh, I it didn't always work for everybody, but that was definitely the, the design was that it would be, you know, it was sort of a mystery. It was sort of a, a, a the Sildoon company was sort of uh, up to no good. So in some sense, it was sort of a crime drama. And it was, uh, again, very small and intimate in scope. And it was the idea being, you know, you learn, you learn about it as he does. And so it, he's, he's sort of like a detective as well as a journalist, um, really trying to figure everything out. And so that, that vibe was definitely pretty heavy, especially in the first book. It, it, the second and third books, um, you know, the... I always like to say the aperture opens and the scope opens and it gets a lot more, it still has the atmosphere and the mood, I think of the first book, but it definitely, there are more characters, there's more politics, there's uh, more cities, there's more travel, there's more the epic, you know, kind of fantasy stuff sort of creeps in. But I really, in the first book, especially, uh, was really trying hard to establish that film noir sort of vibe. And um, so, I mean, I, I don't know if how distinct that is compared to all the books out there. I mean, I haven't read everything, but I, I felt like, that was my sort of unique or tried to be unique. They say there's never uh, anything new under the sun, but that was my idea. It was that I'd sort of give it a different spin and, and uh, take it in a little different direction maybe than some other stuff. But for, again, for good or ill, some, not everybody responded well to that strategy, but that was definitely, uh, that was what pushed it forward. Well, I think what's, what's one, one interesting thing about the Sildoon that I've read so far 
is that you actually describe that they have this sort of reputation as eating virgins and babies <laughs> and stuff like that. I imagine that's not the case. We would probably probably learn more about the people as the story goes along. How would you say Arky? Uh, his full name is Archimandos. Is that yeah, Archimandos, yeah. So um, as the story goes along, or the series goes along, is that myth sort of dispelled a bit uh, where we get to learn that they're not a bunch of baby eaters and they're actually <laughs> all right? <laughs> yeah, you, you do. Uh, I, I think at the very beginning, you know, they have this horrible reputation. They're infamous. Um, and, and a lot of it's more just propaganda than anything else. You know, they're not really eating babies uh, at no point on the trip or in any of the books do they eat babies. <laughs> just putting that out there uh, for anybody wondering. Um, they don't kill their mothers. You know, they're, they're, all the stuff that they've repeatedly done, uh, most of it, put it in context, they are brutal pragmatists. Their main loyalty is to their faction, which is called the Jackal Tower. And the Sildun is comprised, the Empire is comprised of hundreds of, of all these different factions and towers that are always competing against each other, as well as every other entity outside the, the uh, Sildun Empire. And so their main loyalty isn't even necessarily to the Empire, although they, they do pledge allegiance to that, but it's mostly just to their tower. And so everything they do is to protect the tower, to uh, push the tower's agenda forward, to protect their brothers in arms in the tower. I mean, it's all that that loyalty is what ties them all together. And I think as you get to know, as Arky and the reader uh, together get to know them better, I think they get more humanized and more fleshed out, and you get to see them as real characters and not, uh, you know, stereotypes or, or even archetypes or whatever um, that they're. You know, they do have a bad reputation because they are sort of, they're, they're badasses. They, uh, they do some really uh, somewhat despicable things, especially from Arky's perspective, because he's very, he's, he's a sensitive writer kid. You know, he's, he's young, he's inexperienced, he's never seen even more than a bar fight. And these, these guys are just, um, they don't pull any punches and they, they, are, they can be sort of brutal. But I think that was always the idea too, is that the more he gets to know them and the more he, he sort of gradually earns the respect... And he really does become more embedded as opposed to this outsider perspective looking in. And so he gets invited more and more into the inner circle and, and really does come to understand them better. I think despite himself, even though he has lots of reservations, uh, as he, especially in the beginning, he has no idea what he's got into. And he's sort of throwing his hands up in there going, what the fuck? I, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm going to die. Uh, this, is, this is craziness. <laughs> As he, as he travels with them, I think he gradually does come to appreciate them more and, and really see them uh, for who they are. And I think uh, that was always the idea, too, is that it's, it's a journey for him as a character because it shows his perspective changing. And it, it's also um, that's how he gets to learn more and more about them as uh, the captain eventually does come to rely on him and trust him a little bit more and, and uh, kind of brings him into that inner circle. And he's privy to a lot more. So, yeah, to answer your question, sorry, long winded answer. You know, I think that that. The idea is that they're not baby eaters, but they're somewhere between that, that horrible extreme and, you know, what you would classify as any kind of good guys. I mean, they're definitely morally in the gray sort of middle somewhere, uh, most of them. But even still, you know, they some of them do eventually come to befriend Arky. And, uh, you know, I think he does really come to admire and respect, uh, even though he's sort of still terrified of them through most of the series. Um, he does come to, I think, admire and respect them more. Yeah, you mentioned perspective, and you actually have a short story coming up in the forthcoming Evil is a Matter of Perspective anthology from Grimdark Magazine, and that's all about uh, antagonists and uh, seeing stories from the evil side of things, I guess. Is your story going to be set in the Blood Center's arc series? It is, yeah. Could you give us maybe a little short 
preview or snippet of what you might have planned for that one? Sure, absolutely. I'm still sort of making it up as I go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's due in, in a, about a month, a month and a half, so I, I do need to kind of kick myself in the ass and do this now. But I've mostly been brainstorming about what to write. And it's tricky because uh, now that the series is complete, um, you know, I certainly don't want to do any spoilers. The idea is you want to kind of lure people into the series that haven't read it, but at the same time entertain, entertain people who have. And that's a tough balance because um, a lot of the stories I originally sort of kicked around, some of them just revealed way too much about the plot that does happen since so much of it is sort of mysterious through the first book, book and a half. So I've toyed around with different things. But the, the, the funny thing is with, with this series, as well as I'm sure a lot of other, you know, quote unquote, grimdark books that get labeled that way, a lot of the characters are, if not outright antagonists, they're certainly not goody two shoes protagonists. And they're sort of, uh, you know, they're complicated, they're complex they do some despicable things. They do some really brave and honorable things. They protect their own, but they, against everybody else, they're vicious and, and uh, awful. You could take almost, except for Arky, who's probably the one exception. <laughs> Maybe there's a couple other ones. But, I mean, you could take almost any of the characters from the series and call them an antagonist, quote-unquote, and, and kind of spin the story around that. Um, but instead, I picked the one who's sort of set up as the... In, in the books, he's not really the bad guy because, again... I think that's a little too simple uh, as far as classifying him goes, or anybody in the in the in the series. I don't think good and bad is um, there. There's a spectrum there, but it's it's he's definitely not your mustache twirling bad guy. Even even some of the things he does, as opposed to the Jackal Tower and some of the other main characters, he has his own reasons and his own agenda. So anyway, uh, Emperor Sinead is who I'm talking about. I didn't really spell that out. <laughs> um, <laughs> he he's uh, sort of the, the positioned as the as the quote unquote bad guy. The antagonist in the in the series in some ways uh again i even try and show um that his agenda is a little more complicated than that and he's not some vicious murdering um you know psychopath he, he has reasons for doing what he does but i think that's sort of the and so it'll probably be centered around something to do with him and i haven't really fleshed out exactly what that is making it up as i go um <laughs> but i think that's going to be the uh the direction i'm taking and i think i haven't read any of the other stories obviously yet but I think that's what sort of makes that anthology interesting is that, you know, they, they say and in, in, you go through history, not even just fantasy, and, and anybody, you know, uh, the worst, most vile person on the planet typically doesn't see themselves as, as the villain. You know, they don't see themselves as an antagonist. They see themselves as the star of their own show and their own story, and they're doing what they need to do, and they're motivated by whatever they feel is makes sense to them, and they justify it. And, you know, I mean, there's probably some extremes, Hitler and, you know, Dahmer and Manson that are probably uh, the far-flung edges that everybody would pretty much call evil. But most dictators and, and horrible rulers and mobsters and whoever, I mean, anybody, you pluck them from history that you would kind of cast as the bad guy. I mean, in their in their from their perspective, they're usually not. I mean, I, I'm sure there are exceptions to that rule too, but you know, usually they don't see it that way. And so I think that's exploring their motivations, um, their their kind of um, what what drives them, uh, what what they're interested in accomplishing, why they're doing what they're doing, what what again, what their justifications are to themselves and or to anybody else around them. I think that's a really cool idea for an anthology because so long as as you kind of plumb the depths a little bit. I mean, I think if you just have a, a really kind of cardboardy bad guy, which I'm sure none of these authors do, I haven't read all their works, but as long as you have a fleshed out, complex antagonist, I think uh, this this is a really 
really kicking ass uh, idea. Really unusual, I think, and I, I hope it really does well. It's not your first uh, short story either. You've had a couple of shorts published in uh, Neverland's Library and also Manifesto UF. So not your first walk in the park as far as it comes to short fiction. Do you enjoy writing short fiction? And if so, uh, what's kind of your technique to making sure that you have a snappy short fiction story? You know, I, I've always uh, sort of struggled with short fiction, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. Even back when I was in, in uh, college and grad school and taking lots of fiction workshops, most of them, uh, maybe grad school is a little different. Uh, there's some exceptions there. But most of the time, they want you to just do short stories. They don't want to see chapters in a novel because it's not complete. They can't really give much useful feedback. They want something self-contained and short. And that's always, almost always the, the idea is you're going to be writing short stories. And so I've written tons of short stories, and most of them were pretty shitty. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's just, you know, I'm not really that good at it. And... I think mostly, most of the time, because you have to be so economical, you know, you've got to come up with an idea that that's self that you can finish, uh, obviously, in a relatively small space, and it's it's got to feel complete, and yet at the same time, um, be sort of intriguing and leave some doors open and and whatever. I mean, I think the best short story writers, even when even if the story comes, you know, full circle or there's an arc and you can see the beginning, middle, and end, and it makes sense. I mean, a lot of times they keep you thinking after because it doesn't just wrap everything up neatly. Um, I mean, some of them really do, but it's it's a really tough balance to have a complete kind of a little microcosm of a story that you can handle economically and, and complete everything and make it feel fleshed out and, and totally uh, coherent and real. And that still echoes with you and resonates a little bit after you're done reading it. And that's a really tough thing to pull off. And so I'm, I'm by no means, even though I've done it, this will be my third uh, officially published one. I, it's certainly not really awesome at it. Uh, and I'd, I'd say I'm probably on the other end of the spectrum more often than not, uh, even the two that I published. I mean, I feel decent about them. I feel pretty good about them, I guess. But um, I can nitpick them to hell, too, and, and find all kinds of things I didn't do that well. So this is, you know, definitely not my first rodeo, but I'm and uh, do have some experience doing it. But it, it's always tricky for me to because I think, again, long-winded answer to a short question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry. I think uh, most of my ideas, and this this is a good example. <laughs> this is right here. This is a perfect example of my ideas tend to just sort of sprawl out and, and develop in all kinds of weird tangential ways and, and kind of go off in different directions and tend to want to be bigger. Uh, you know, where I think of these as uh, most ideas I've ever had writing tend to want to be big novels at, at the very least, if not series. And so picking an idea that, that, is um, you know that you can encapsulate it in pretty short amount of time. That's that's a skill that I definitely admire when when writers do it really well because I don't think that's my strength. But um, you know, I'm gonna give it a go. <laughs> gonna do my best here. We'll see. So speaking of ideas, uh, Rob always loves it when I have a good segue. Um, that, was a, that was a good one. That was a good, that was a good segue. <laughs> Sedgwick. I have to say uh, uh, the idea for a weapon that's basically two monster heads on the end of a flail is a pretty epically awesome weapon. Um, where did you come up with the idea for, for, for such a cool weapon when you could have, you know, just went with the basic sword or ax or something like that? Well, I, I think that was one of the things that sort of um, pushed that idea forward was, yeah, you look at fantasy and it's just, it's riddled with swords and axes and bows and arrows and, and maybe some spears here and there. And, and those are all your kind of default weapons that you see in, in most, most fiction. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, there's, there's plenty of, you know, you look at, um, uh, Stormblade and things like that. Stormbringer, sorry. You know, it's a pretty awesome sword, uh, epic cursed mm-hmm. sword. Um, you know, I mean, there's plenty of cool, unusual 
takes on that uh, where you still have a sword or whatever it might be, but you make it unusual in some way. But for this, I really wanted to, uh, one, not go with the default. I wanted to try and pick some different ones. And, and part of that is because the Sildun Empire is sort of inspired by, loosely at least, well, not so, not so loosely, <laughs> um, by the Mamluk Empire. Uh, it's mm. an empire back in the you know, 12th, 13th, or 13th, 14th, 15th century uh, in Egypt. And so it's got, not that it's got a Middle Eastern flair, because that's not really true at all, but just in terms of having unusual, uh, you know, Braylar's sister has a Ransuer, um, Muldus has a Falchion, uh, there's some other... Um, they all have sort of, not all of them, them their swords and, and axes and bows, etc. But there are definitely, there's a collection of, of more, I think, distinct, unusual weapons that I really want to go with. And as far as Blood Sounder, Braylar's weapon, um, the thing that really inspired that was I saw, I, I, I do tons of research when I'm looking for arms and armor, or, um, military history, or all the rest of it. And one of the things I saw when I was doing that was... There were some bronze, I want to say they're bronze, maybe, the, yeah, I think they're bronze, doesn't matter. Um, Norwegian uh, mace heads, uh, they're real, uh, obviously Norwegian, not fantasy, um, that were, I think, 13th century, I want to say. Anyway, they were really stylized uh, faces, and hmm. there were a couple of them, and, and they looked sort of tortured and anguished, and um, they were spiky because they were sort of mace heads. Uh, but you could definitely see that there were faces on there. And they're probably more ceremonial than actually used. I don't know if I really researched enough to figure out if they ever saw action. They probably would get dented to hell and look for <laughs> after one battle. But um, it just seeing those that those were actually existed. I thought, well, that's that's kind of cool. I, I want to try and do something along those lines. And then I thought, well, that my original idea was a mace. And I thought, eh, that's still not, that's not quite far enough away from the stuff I want to get away from here. I'm going to keep looking and researching. So I was thinking about a weapon that, because his the blood sounder, the flail, is is a cursed weapon in a lot of ways, and it hurts Braylar as much as it helps him, and sometimes even more so. And so I wanted a weapon that was really, that sort of embodied that, you know, that was difficult to use. Flail, I've, I've played around with some replicas. They're hard as hell to use. I almost killed myself like 12 times. <laughs> um, they're just, they're inherently difficult to make to use well they're really tricky if you get the spin wrong a little bit or you're not watching the trajectory it'll hit yourself in the back of the head you know so it's really difficult to use and it's i thought the deserters which are believed to be the gods in this world left behind lots of their visages even though they've disappeared from the world uh and so there's still some remnant statues and you know things like that where you see these faces and, and so i thought well that connecting the dots between the mace that i originally saw the norwegian one and the flail idea, um, you know, just kind of put two and two together, and uh, it seemed like that was a good fit. And so I just, you know, I, I toyed around with it. I was going to do originally more of like a Hussite flail, which is a much longer sort of polearm uh, that was, was a real historical flail. Uh, too big and awkward. I wanted something that could be concealed and sit on a belt and, you know, that sort of thing. And so that's where I kind of scaled it back down to the just a one-handed, two-headed flail with the, the deserter heads on it. So, yeah, that, that was sort of where that idea came from. Yeah, I think it's cool because it's actually featured on the covers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's a pretty eye-catching image to have on the cover. It's immediately you're drawn to the image of this weapon. And uh, I think it's interesting how how people say how important cover art is in order to hook a reader. Um, you know, right. Usually they say the blurb, the cover art, and like a sample. Those are usually the big things people look for. Uh, I believe you said when you first saw the uh, cover, uh, you said it perfectly captured your image of the characters and the and everything. Do, do you feel like the cover art has done wonders for selling you a shitload of books? And <laughs> do you recommend that for writers who are kind of on the fence about, you know, how important is cover art? That's a really good question. Um, 
and I and I don't know the answer to that because you know I don't know that there's it's sort of a subjective thing, right? I mean, it's and there's not a lot of analytics, I don't think, anyway, uh, to say you know I don't know how many surveys have been done where I mean you hear anecdotally, yeah, a lot of a lot of readers say uh, cover our blurb, like you said, sample those are some of the things that they hook you and draw you in. Um, but I don't know how conclusive that is or, you know, how that's translated into sales necessarily. But I will say um, for sure that one of the cool things about working with Nightshade books is that unlike some of the bigger, you know, powerhouse publishers out there, I was definitely involved in the cover process. I've heard stories where the writer mm. doesn't, isn't really invited in to that process at all and sort of they get, hey, here's your cover. hope you like it. I mean, basically, <laughs> right. you know, that's... Uh, they don't get to see it much. They don't certainly don't get to weigh in and give input. Uh, or if they do, it's it's sort of understood. Well, thanks for playing, but we we're still going to do what we want to do with the publisher. <laughs> um, so you know, I, I've heard plenty of writers that that get frustrated with their covers or, or aren't necessarily happy with them. I mean, they don't usually say that out loud in forum forums or public places because it's you don't want to badmouth your publisher or the artist. But you know, privately, I, I've heard some that were sort of like, ah, I wish I'd had more input. Uh, and that was a great thing. Was I definitely was involved um, from the get-go, both in just kind of the conception of the, the covers, uh, helping to generate the ideas. Uh, they then asked me, you know, what scenes do you want to see here on the covers? I mean, they let me spell it out. And because uh, I'm a nut job, <laughs> I wrote out, you know, massive uh, descriptions and, and really in-depth, uh, just really detailed descriptions of what the scene is, uh, what it's trying to convey. Um, and especially I sent... Each of the artists, there were three of them, uh, one a different one for each cover. I sent all of them just tons of, of um, especially two and three. I was more involved in those two more, more than the first one, but in all of them. But I sent lots of pieces of, of art uh, in terms of armor, weapons. And I didn't try and dictate what the artist did, but I, I said, you know, this is sort of what I have in mind. This is what, this is my image. This is, this is what I was looking for. So... Obviously, you're the artist, you're going to do take it and be inspired and do what you want to do with it. But I, I want to at least give you as much information as I can from my end. I'm sure the artist were just like, "What the fuck, dude? I don't, I don't need all this. I, I, I just need a synopsis. I'm going to draw what I draw. Get out of my face." They were, but they were really uh, polite and receptive and awesome to work with. Very professional and um, so. Anyway, it was, it was definitely to me. It felt like uh, a collaborative. Uh, sort of enterprise, and I felt like I definitely had a voice in, in what the covers looked like. So, you know, it, it def seeing though some those covers finally come out and seeing them actually realized, I, it was really awesome because I felt like, you know, they listened to what I wanted. They definitely took it on board. Uh, they definitely tried to capture what I what I had pitched to them in terms of the ideas, and they used the uh, the arms and armor references, and they they really uh, they did an awesome job. I mean, all three of them and. Um, the fact that there were three and they still managed to make them all feel, not about homogenous, that's probably not quite the right word, but, you know, that they all feel like they belong to a set. Uh, they, Even though they're different artists, they still maintained some of the same through lines and there's enough that kind of holds them together. You Even if you can tell they're different artists, you don't think that they're wildly crazy different images. So, uh, yeah, I couldn't have been happier with that part of it. I mean, I think um, it was fantastic and, and really uh, a joy to, to work with them on those. <clears throat> so cover art is important. How important would you say it is to have a brooding author cover <laughs> shot. Is that important? Or? Oh, of course. That's critically important. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, well, funny to me. I, I hope you find it funny. <laughs> I, uh, it was a buddy of mine who's uh, sort of not a professional photographer, but definitely a really talented one who does a lot of stuff on his own. Anyway, I couldn't afford a professional photo shoot. 
Um, not that they're crazy expensive, but I have three kids. You know, they need they need slippers, food, and, and yeah, right. food and sequins and whatever the hell. Um, so <laughs> I I just didn't I could I didn't want to spring for a uh, a photo shoot. So I basically bought my buddy a sandwich and and he took me out one day and he's like, okay, we're gonna. It was a nice gray, moody day, so that was perfect. And he said, you know, your your stuff is sort of dark fantasy, grim dark fantasy, whatever it is, film noir, that sort of thing. You want to you want to have some shadows. You want to have a sort of kind of uh, atmosphere. You want atmosphere in this picture. And I was like, all right, cool, atmosphere. Let's do that. But I was so jazzed about having having a, a book deal and being a published author. Finally, I was smiling like a freaking nut job <laughs> in every single picture. And he's like, dude, no, no, this isn't working. You you look like you're way too happy. And you don't look nearly uh, brooding and intimidating <laughs> enough. You, you got to tone it down. I was like, I, I can't. I'm, I'm happy. This is awesome. It's like, yeah, okay. You just need to think about plague and famine and eating babies <laughs> and the most, babies. Hor- the most horrific thing you can imagine. Think about that. Think about that and just do that. I was like, okay, all right, all right. And so, sure enough, uh, I did think about awful, terrible, tragic things, and that's the photo he picked. Uh, He's like, yes, winner, (laughs) we have it. That's what we're looking for. If folks go to your website, jeffsalyards.com, they can see that brooding, lovely shot right at the (laughs) top of the page there. I look sort of like a second-class hitman, but, you know, that's all right. (laughs) I'll take it. The semi-professional. Yeah, kind of a hobbyist. And looking back on the, the, the series, the Bloodsounders arc, what would you say was probably the most challenging part of getting the trilogy out? Well, uh, I, you've probably heard about this already, um, but I don't know if everybody has. Um, the, the original crew that handled the original publisher that was Nightshade Books, they went under pretty much. They were on the brink of bankruptcy, and this was after the first book was out, and I was in the middle of writing uh, Veil of the Deserters. So sort of series was just underway, uh, not even at the midway point. And for me, and so um, they they were going belly up, and nobody knew what was going to happen to the rights to the books, uh, to any of the series that were kind of in process like mine, to any of the ones that were already out. Uh, in terms of those authors, if they were going to get paid, um, you know, nothing, nothing was. It was all just a crapshoot. Nobody had any idea what what was going to happen. And so there were, oh geez, probably it felt like ten years, but I'm sure it was like four months where. There was, there was a lot of just just total uncertainty, and and then this other publisher, Skyhorse, and uh, Start um, stepped in, and and they offered to basically buy the rights to most of their publishing list, provided that enough authors agreed to the terms that they were offering. And so even at that point, you'd think that's a lifeline, and and most people would have jumped at it. But again, um, not everybody was really happy with with those terms that everybody got in the front end. And so there was a lot of public, a lot of forums, uh, I'm sure on Reddit, I'm sure plenty of other places. There was a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of angst, a lot of frustration, a lot of, um, privately, I know there was, a lot of authors were really uh, discontent <laughs> about the whole thing and, and just really, uh, really unhappy. And then there was enough public, though, outcry, not just the private kind, that I think some of those terms of the deal got renegotiated and made it a little more, I think, palatable for um, some of the some of the writers. Long story short, they stepped in and they they bought the rights, and and I knew the series was going to move forward. But there was that, you know, uh, again, I don't, I'd have to go back and look at the timeline or calendar, but I, probably a good four or five, six months somewhere in there, uh, where I, we just had no idea what was going to go on, and so it was really difficult to write because I thought, well, if my series gets caught in bankruptcy proceedings and nobody buys the rights to it, and I don't have the rights to it because it's tied up in this. It could be years before I could even try and self-publish it. And at that point, the series is going to be dead. I mean, the only one book out, 
nobody's going to give a crap about books two or three. Uh, it's going to be dead in the water. And so I, I really didn't write very much on it. I actually did one of those short stories that you mentioned in one of the other anthologies at the time and um, sort of took a break from Vale because even though I was feeling re- really good about it, I didn't want to invest a lot of time and energy if it turned out uh, it was a dead duck. And so, yeah, I think that was probably the most challenging thing was just having no clue what was going to happen, um, feeling, you know, dread <laughs> most days, opening the email, just wondering if they're going to get more bad news about it or, um, you know, again, just hearing all the other authors. It was nice because it was a communal thing. We all kind of bonded and came together, uh, but it was just also a really difficult, difficult time, I think, for pretty much everybody involved. So that was probably the most challenging thing was just not knowing and then um, sort of losing some momentum myself just because I did move away from it for a little bit and trying to regain that. So, yeah, that definitely would be the most challenging thing. Absolutely. When you signed on with Nightshade, was it for a trilogy? Yes. Okay. So it, I can imagine when you <laughs> finally found out that, yay, my trilogy is getting published. Oh, shit, my publisher is going bankrupt. I imagine probably wasn't too much wind in your sails. No, no, that definitely took the wind out. Um, that was, you know, that was a hard blow for a little while there. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, no, nobody died. It wasn't, you know, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't the worst thing that could have happened. Uh, the house didn't burn down and, you know, any, anything like that, but it was certainly in just in terms of being a writer, uh, and trying to, you know, get a career started doing it. It, it definitely was not ideal, you know, not, not ideal. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was tough. So besides the uh, short story you're working on, do you plan to work in this world again? Do you plan to revisit with another standalone book or any uh, another series, perhaps? I probably will at some point. Uh, I, I definitely feel like even though I wrapped up uh, the trilogy sort of the way I wanted to and uh, definitely ended it the way I wanted to, there's still plenty of other stories that could be told there in that world either with those characters or different, totally different cast of characters. And that was one of the things I, I sort of toyed with once I wrapped it up was when I was thinking about brainstorming what to work on next. And I was weighing my options. And one of them, of course, was to do a different, totally different cast of characters, different region of that world, but set in the same universe and the same world, um, a, a new series, either standalone or series. Sort of the Abercrombie model where some of the other premier yeah. characters from the first series might show up as cameos or uh, you know, have their have their day in the sun for a minute in the new series, but it basically was going to be a new new cast. So that was one idea, and then the other one, which was a total 180 degrees, was to do this brand new this new series, totally unrelated, uh, different vein, different different perspective, different everything, pretty much style, uh, tone. And so I, I weighed those two. I, I did a lot of wrote some synopses for both, um, discussed it with my agent, talked it over at length thought about it at length uh and then ultimately decided at least for now i went in uh picked door b and went with this brand new series i still i mean i love i love the characters from blood sounders arc and i i think the, the one thing you want to uh, avoid as a writer i think is just kind of spinning your wheels or rehashing something or uh just cranking something out because it's easy i think I won't speak for other writers. Me, personally, I like to try and challenge myself. Not that it would have been by any means boring or or easy to write a new series in that world. It certainly would have involved a lot of work. But I felt like I needed, I wanted at least a a different kind of challenge. And so I moved off in this other direction. Now, to answer your question, yeah, I mean, I think someday I certainly would be open and willing to coming back there. I think, uh, you know, I already did the synopsis, one synopsis anyway for it. 
I think there's plenty of stuff I could, uh, plenty of grist for the mill. I could, I could certainly tell lots of other stories in the same world. And I've had, I've had that question come up a few times uh, where people are really hoping that I do come back to it. And the way I look at it is that's a great problem to have that readers want to read more <laughs> in, that, sure. in that because it means uh, even though I finished things the way I wanted to, I left them wanting more, which is, you know, ideal. That's kind of what you, you would really hope for. So I feel good about it, but sort of bad telling them, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, right now I'm not going to do anything in that world. But yeah, I, I'm definitely leaving the door open. And the new series is Urban Fantasy? It's sort of an urban fantasy sci-fi fusion mashup thing. I'm a jig. Or, <laughs> um, fusion. Yeah, fusion. That's a good word to throw around, isn't it? You sound so <laughs> smart when you say words like that. Fusion. <laughs> it sounds, yeah, meaningful. Yeah, it's, it's definitely sort of combination and it's... Um, set i'm almost done with the manuscript actually it's um i think i have about four chapters left maybe and then obviously tons of revision ahead but i mean i think i almost have all my raw material done and i I feel i feel really good about it i mean i think um one thing i did a little differently with this with this series or yeah well it will be a series but this book anyway um is i i definitely invited more beta readers to take a look at it just because it was so different and so outside my wheelhouse I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to crap the bed <laughs> and that I, <laughs> I had an idea what I was doing and it worked. Uh, you know, it doesn't always translate to the page. So I wanted to make sure that what I was, what I was putting out there was going to, was going to fly with readers. So I definitely had a lot more beta readers in it than I did in the first series. The first series, it was a very select group, mostly my agent and a couple other people that looked at any kind of drafts of uh, any of the books in, in Blood Sounders arc. But this time it's been about 10 of them and it's almost like uh, you know, kind of a mini writer's workshop. And so, I feel like I've gotten really good feedback about uh, most of them. I've only read the first half, but really good feedback about where it's going. Uh, overall, I think um, I'm, re- I'm just really excited about it. I feel I love I love the characters equally as much as the ones in Blood Sounders arc. Uh, and I feel like even though it took me a little while kind of to build up momentum because it was so different and new and took me off in a much different direction than I was used to doing. I think now once I found found my groove and kind of got got moving with it, I, I feel uh, yeah, I feel really solid. Well, with the Bloodsenders arc, you've truly proven that uh, you are a strength with the sword and sorcery slash grimdark subgenre. So that's definitely your strength. I mean, you hit it out of the park with that series. What made you decide to go with urban fantasy for this new one, or urban fantasy ish fusion <laughs> as the as the subgenre? Fusion. Fusion. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, like I said, I, I think, and I'm not even a huge urban fantasy reader. To be honest, I mean, I've, I've, hmm. I've read before I actually started this. I'd only probably read a handful. I'd read some of the uh, Dresden Files. I'd read, uh, you know, probably a few other series here and there. But definitely, I always gravitated more to either epic fantasy, uh, grimdark, uh, whatever mm-hmm. sword and source, anything along those lines. That kind of fantasy. I that was always sort of my my bailiwick or whatever. But um, so I didn't even know that much about it, and I. That was one of the things I did on the front end was I wanted to at least familiarize, familiarize myself with what was out there and get a real sense of it to just see if, if that's what I really wanted to do. Um, because, again, I, I didn't want to accidentally repeat a bunch of <laughs> stories somebody had already published like two years before. And I didn't want to just hammer on the same tropes everybody do, uses without really even knowing I was doing it. So I needed to kind of build a, a base to write from. And so I read a bunch, you know, really in quick succession, all kinds of different urban fantasy and slash uh, some science fiction that isn't too far flung, you know, still fairly grounded in, in what we would call our reality here, you know, modern reality. So anyway, I read a bunch of, of books sort of in those veins. Um, the, the idea of it, it being 
because it was so far outside what I had done, because it was so far outside of what I was normally familiar with, I just thought it would be a really cool challenge, and I just wanted to see if I could pull it off. And so I, I just figured I'd give it a go. Worst case scenario, you waste a year of your life, and <laughs> you, you turn out a book that's crap, and, and it doesn't sell, and so be it. Um, you know, obviously that's, <laughs> I'm making light of it, but that certainly wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be good. So we'll see what happens with it. But I, I feel like just in terms of picking a, the doors, I just thought the challenging aspect of it just, just, it would definitely be, cause it's, it's four, um, third person point of views as opposed to first person. So obviously one huge difference right out of the gate. Sure. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've written lots of third person, you know, short stuff before, but ne- definitely not novels. So that was, uh, it was a pretty big departure. Um, obviously the setting, it's set in about 35 years in the future, as opposed to <laughs> Bloodsounders Arc World. Um, <laughs> you know, setting's totally different, characters, it's, well, there's definitely got, it's definitely has some, some violence and some action, and, and uh, there's certainly some uh, bloody stuff that happens. It's probably not as relentlessly uh, dark as Bloodsounders arc, uh, there's definitely more humor, I think, to it. So it's not a comedy, but it's definitely got some lighter stuff uh, going on to balance that out. I think um, the two things that I, I generally feel pretty good about as a writer, there's plenty of things I don't, but um, one of them is, is doing dialogue, and two of them is uh, kind of writing action sequences and being a, a fight choreographer for, in the books. And so those two, even though I'm doing something totally different, I definitely wanted to make sure I was playing to my strengths. So uh, those two feature both, uh, you know, pretty prominently in the in the new series, and definitely are the uh, the building blocks. I mean, that everything kind of springs from those two things. So that part definitely translates over, and um, I feel like the readers who liked Bloodsounders arc, they'll still get a huge kick out of the characters, the dialogue, their interactions, and definitely it's it's even more action packed than. Um, well, pretty much either of the, any of those three books in Bloodsounders arc, even even Chains, which has really got a bunch of uh, set pieces and big battles and everything else. I think this is just as uh, just as action oriented. So I feel like that's kind of the idea is that I'll appeal to brand new writer readers who've never seen my stuff, but also I'll hopefully carry over some of the ones that really were drawn to the first series that'll still get a kick out of this one, even though it's probably um, a pretty big pretty big change. Can you tell us the night? Sure. Well, it's sort of tentative, uh, even though I'm almost done. I, I probably am gonna let it sit for a little bit and, and evaluate it. Cause I always go through like 30 working titles uh, before <laughs> I've never, I, that's one other thing I'm not great at. I, I never uh, feel really happy about my titles. So it's Gr- grimoire zero is the tentative title Ooh. working title. And uh, sexy. Yeah. I was going to say the opposite. Actually. I think your titles are awesome. Like, Oh, like thank you. Scourge of the betrayer. And like, yeah. Chains of the it's like a metal those band. Awesome. <laughs> those are awesome names. Yeah. I, I, yeah, they I, immediately, I, I, immediately appealed to me anyway. Well, that's awesome. I, I always just sort of agonize over them, I guess. Even if I end up being happy with them, I just go through like 5,000 iterations and I bounce like 100 of them off my agent a day and he's like, dude, just pick one. I don't even. <laughs> just <laughs> go with one. I mean, actually, no, they're no, badass. No, he, he, that's why I mentioned them all at the beginning too. Cause, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, I went through a thousand versions of all of them, but this time uh, I've only gone through, I've gone through a lot fewer. So I don't know if that means it's going to stick or I'm just going to suddenly wake up and get a wild hair and totally change it. Um, but yeah, at least for right now, that's the working title. Let me, let me voice guy it for a second. Super close to the mic. Grimoire zero. Yeah. See by Jeff Salyards. I like Wait, it. I want to do it. I want to do it. Grimoire zero by Jeff Salyards. See, that's sexy. My one's be- that's good. My one's better. <clears throat> They're both pretty good. Yeah, the twang on it. <laughs> and is that a signed deal? Have you, have no. you, no. Oh, okay. No. So yeah, it's uh total uh, roll of the dice here. Um, we'll see. Uh, it's, 
see. And I think that's part of the thing, too, is that, you know, when you're sort of an up and coming author, you can't just pitch something on a napkin to a publisher and say, hey, uh, this is my idea. You know, let's let's sign this sucker and, and move on. <laughs> you know, when you're a big name, huge name, you not that you could do that, but you definitely I think they're more willing to take a risk. They know you've got a big uh, kind of sales track record and, and obviously you're well known and you've got a uh, bunch of sales under your belt. And so. I think they're more willing to say, yeah, just show us the synopsis and, you know, if it sounds good, we're going to move forward or, or it shows a few chapters or whatever. And here, uh, I just don't have that luxury. So I do have to write the entire thing. I have to polish it. I have to make sure I feel awesome about it. And then the agent's going to pitch it and we'll, <laughs> we'll see it. Uh, see. So, yeah, it's, it's a dangerous little game. We'll uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, it, it pans out. One thing that I'm seeing definitely playing out for you, Jeff, is being a risk taker. I think you took risks in your initial series, and I think you're taking a risk with the urban fantasy thing, which is good. And I think it's going to pay off for you in the end. So I think readers are going to have lots of cool things to look forward to in that new series. But but would you say it's an important thing to take risks as a, as a uh, younger writer like yourself with this first trilogy? Is, is risk taking something that you would recommend for writers? Probably not. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think... Personally, I mean, I think, it, I think it's good to challenge yourself. I think it's good to take some risks. I think it's good to try different things just to uh, push yourself and see what you're capable of. I mean, I think sometimes with anything, with fantasy, urban fantasy, westerns, whatever genre it is, sometimes you'll see a writer get to be, um, they've picked up some, they've got success and they've got a following, they've got readership, and they slip into sort of formulaic stuff. You know, they just start to crank out. They, they they give it a new coat of paint, but it's basically the same sort of story, the same sort of characters, kind of book in and book out. And for me, as a reader, I get tired of that really fast. I mean, if you're not engaging me in a different way and showing me something new, um, I mean, not that I you know won't go back to the well on some writers over and over again. I mean, especially if they do a good job. But I like to see some new stuff. Um, and so for me as a reader, that that I've always um, been turned on by that. That's something I look for. So you know, and some. Writers, I think, new or established, um, you know, they, again, they they find what's what they do well, and and they get good feedback and probably good sales, and they go, okay, well, I'm just going to run with it because that's that's my strength and that's what I uh, excel at, and so I found it, I'm going to do it, and you know, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I think if if it's up to each writer, if you feel comfortable doing that, and that's what you you feel like you found your your place, and that's what you want to want to work on. That's you know, more power to you. Just me personally, I feel like, and hopefully it doesn't blow up in my face. Uh, you know, <laughs> we'll see four months from now or whatever. Um, you know, I feel like if right now, just looking at what I what I wrote here in this new book, it's totally you can't even. It's apples to oranges. I mean, the two are so very different in so many ways. Like I said, there, there's two things that carry over. That's the dialogue and the action. But I mean, just in terms of everything else, it feels in some ways almost like a different writer writing it. There's enough staples, I think, salyard stuff that people will pick up on that you know, readers that do like my stuff will hopefully gravitate to. But anyway, the point is I really wanted some reader to pick it up and go, holy shit, this is, this is totally a brand new thing. And I'd love to build up a bigger readership. Uh, I'm greedy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't have some of the success that a lot of the peers out there do. And, you know, I'm jealous of that. So uh, <laughs> um, I'd love to get more readers uh, to both the first series and obviously with this new one. So Hopefully this, uh, as you said, hopefully it does pan out for me and we'll see. Um, I, I personally do think taking risks, though, is, um, you know, by its nature, it's a gamble. It is a risk. And I think that in some ways, wow, this got to be a long-winded answer, too. Right? <laughs> um, it's all good. <laughs> 
you know, the, the, the first book, Scourge of the Betrayer, it was definitely a risky kind of little venture to, to frame it that way, to hope readers would uh, catch on to the characters and the intrigue and be intrigued enough to just keep reading, even though a lot of it was sort of left in the dark. Uh, no info dumping, as, as Phil said, uh, definitely the opposite of that. That definitely worked for some readers. They loved it. And they, especially once they got to the second book and third book, it opened up and, you know, it was kind of the payoff was there. But for some readers, you know, they got through half of it or even the whole book and the next one wasn't out. And so even if they were sort of on the fence, they were like, eh, it's I, I was sort of frustrated by not knowing what was going on until the very end. And, and now there's no second book to jump into. So in a lot of ways, that was um, a gamble I did intentionally. Um, I took intentionally, but it was, you know, definitely didn't pay off for, for some people. And that's 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 cool. That's awesome. Um, everybody, you know gets what they get out of the book and, and more power to them as readers. So I can't begrudge anybody who didn't like it, but, um, you know, that to your question is, is, do I recommend doing it? Um, you just have to know if you do, uh, it, it could definitely be a uh, bad gamble. <laughs> there's, there's no guarantees that it's going to be a good one, but that's true of anything. Like even if you feel really good about your genre, what you write in, you just turn out another series or book that's in the same vein, you know, readers are, are, are strange creatures. <laughs> they can never predict necessarily if it's going to uh, continue the same trend of building momentum and readership or if, uh, you know, what will happen. So I figure as long as you're doing what you feel comfortable doing and you feel like you com- you're compelled to do it and you feel good about it, uh, you know, chips fall where they fall and that's all you can do. One awesome thing that came your way recently was uh, on Reddit. There was a 2016 underread underrated uh, results, and uh, you were picked as one of the the authors that people think uh, more people should get eyes on your books and make you a make you a household name as soon as possible. <laughs> and uh, one one thing me and Rob love to do is catch Pokemon. So. <clears throat> <laughs> One thing uh, we talked about was trying to get guests that are on this list because we, we're always interested in, in finding <clears throat> the newest, coolest writers. And, and we've had a lot of guests tell us that they've discovered writers because of our show, and that's re- really cool for us. Yeah, that's and, awesome. And uh, how do you feel about being on like a list like that on Reddit, which, you know, obviously lots of people check out Reddit. And yeah, and a lot maybe a lot of people started checking out your books after that. Yeah, I, I definitely hope so. It certainly beats being on, a, you know, the most overrated list. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, if, if we're going to be on a list, I'd sit be on that one, uh, the underrated. But um, I, I, I was honored to be on there, and I, I looked at some of the other names that were, that appeared, you know, in the top five or ten or whatever it was. And, um, you know, there's some some great writers. Uh, I don't know all of them, but I, I certainly am familiar with enough of them to see that they all deserve to be there. They're all tremendously talented and, and uh all deserve success, uh, commercial success, and and bigger readership, and all the rest of it. So, I hope for you know any of the ones you bring over to the podcast, uh, any of the ones that appeared on that list. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I hope uh, readers venture out and give them a shot because um, they're all you know they're all A plus writers, and uh, it you know it just it's really there's so many factors that go into what makes a reader or, or a writer take off and, and find success. And obviously talent is usually a part of it. I mean, there are plenty of sort of ha- hacks out there you see in, in some genres that uh, you wonder how the hell they got published and how they have a million readers and all the rest. And you go, ah, they're not even that good. Why? I don't get it. And then there's some that toil in obscurity, you know, like that are on that list that hopefully don't stay on that list that, um, you know, will eventually find their, their readers because, um, Talent like that, I mean, it's a shame that it doesn't get seen by as many eyeballs as it should. And um, 
so yeah, I think it's great that you're you're going to try and uh, you know get more folks from that list on the show and on the podcast. I think uh, the more exposure they get, the more people, whether it's Reddit, something like your podcast, whatever it might be, just word of mouth. I mean, I think um, all that stuff's invaluable and will really uh, can really make a difference in somebody's career, especially when they're just trying to get moving or they've had several books out. Like Jenny Wirtz was, I think, the, the top of the list, if I remember mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, she's been writing forever, and yeah. so it's not like she's a brand new writer. And that she's still on that list or has come and gone on that list, it sort of boggles the mind. It's like she's, you know, she wrote with Raymond Feist back in the 80s. She's written tons of standalone stuff on her own. She's, you know, for whatever reason, has never maybe found as many readers as some of the big names that you see on Reddit constantly. So it's, it's really interesting to me to see, you know, somebody like that who's obviously immensely talented, who doesn't have... Um, a massive following why that why that is i mean because it's not talent i mean that's not that's not in question so it's it's a mysterious thing to me that uh some some writers really you know hit it big and others don't and the way i look at it is because I, I know um personally it's hard sometimes when you feel like you're working your ass off and you've done the best you can do and you still haven't found your readers you know you still haven't gotten the success that you were hoping for and it the sales aren't quite as encouraging as maybe you liked or whatever it's hard sometimes to look at those successful writers that are on reddit or anywhere else any other forums uh the top seller lists you know etc to look at them and go you know it's hard not to be jealous uh that to sort of envious of their success and at the same time though what i always come back to whenever i do start to feel any inklings of that and um it's just the more people that are reading the better and if they're reading some other writers that are in the same genre as me, you know, maybe that eventually that'll help them stumble onto mine and word of mouth on lists like that, whatever it might be. So I, I, I always hope everybody on that list, they, they flourish and take off and, and really hit it big. So um, I'd love to be in that group, <laughs> but um, you know, I hope the best for all of them. Well, always, always find that uh, fantasy readers especially love to read. And I think sometimes uh, they may have read everything they can read. They feel like they've read everything they can read. So sometimes I feel uh, lists like that are great for people that feel like they've read everything. They're like, oh, I've read, you know, I've read Martin, I've read Erickson, I've read Abercrombie, et cetera, et cetera. And then one of these lists comes out and then immediately you're going, oh, well, I've heard this name before and cool. They made this list. I need to check them out because one of the biggest things is for readers is seeing people's names come up repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, this is one thing I've noticed is when sometimes readers will say, man, I've seen this guy's name come up constantly. And I, I remember, you know, Michael R. Fletcher won't mind us saying this because he's our buddy. But right. uh, I remember when he was promoting Beyond Redemption, he was everywhere, like all over the place. Yep. And, uh, and we were like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> and, then, and then you know everybody you know really dug his uh his debut you know beyond redemption yeah, so yeah 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 we, we always think it's cool when writers or readers feel like oh i've read everything and then something like this surfaces and then you're like oh shit i haven't read this guy or I haven't read I haven't read her yet so yeah it's always exciting for us i think as readers when our to be read list gets ever ever larger <laughs> and never, yeah. never shrinks. <laughs> That's true. And there's always new ones uh, coming out all the time. Yet again, the clock has gotten away from us. We're like, hey, Jeff, let's talk for 35, 40 <laughs> minutes. And, and we're now an hour into the podcast. So we've taken up lots and lots of your time this morning, Jeff. Thanks so much for uh, jumping on the horn sure. today and 
Joining us on the show, Jeff Salyards is a name that's known in my household. It's a household name at the Matheny <laughs> household. So uh, the Blood Sounders arc series, Scourge of the Betrayer, Veil the Deserters, Chains of the Heretic, all available on Amazon right now for people to pick up and consume an underrated series. And that's why we've got you on the shows, because we want folks to know about the awesomeness that is the Blood Sounders arc and Jeff Salyards. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's been great to talk with you. It's been a long time coming, but I'm glad we finally got to get you on the show show Absolutely. and uh, please do come back when you drop the new series and we we didn't even get to cover all the stuff that we were going to talk about today that's how how much we geeked out today but uh, we'd <laughs> love to have you back on the show when you drop the new stuff for oh, sure absolutely i'd love to be i like to give the blood sounders arc uh my uh phil thumbs up approval of what i've read so far i started reading it and yeah it's really cool so definitely check it out because it's it's badass so far what i'm reading so awesome get that shit <laughs> get on it <laughs> Uh, thanks, Phil. Thanks, uh, Rob. Really appreciate it. Yes, thank you, Jeff. Have a good one, man. All right, you too. You can find us online at facebook.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast or on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, and if you like this show, please share it and leave a review. Be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grimdark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, Thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs>